Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, for remote positions, Girl Get That Money is hiring graphic designers. Facebook is looking to hire a product design manager for the app's UI quality team. And Recurly is looking for a senior product designer in Boulder, Colorado. Companies, stop making excuses on your DNI efforts and post your job listing with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry, and this episode is brought to you by Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit Facebook.Design. Let's get into this week's interview. I'm talking with Johnny Austin, VP of Engineering at Till. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah, my name is Johnny Austin. I work as a Vice President of Engineering at Till in Washington, D.C. Now, before we get into your work at Till, we're recording this now during a time where a lot of people are in quarantine because of the global health pandemic from COVID-19. So I'm just asking folks like at the top of every interview, like, how are you feeling? How are you holding up? I'm personally feeling pretty good, holding up well. You know, I recognize that I'm in a relatively privileged position. You know, I'm in a tech job. I can work remotely as can the rest of my team. So personally feeling good, waking up, trying to stay clean. Uh, Maybe I go a few more days without shaving than normal. But other than that, feeling pretty good. So it sounds like you're kind of managing your time pretty well during quarantine. Yeah, I try to. I was doing a lot better toward the beginning. You know, things kind of fall off a little bit, but I'm trying to get back on it. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think that's normal. Like we haven't been through yeah. anything like this before. So there's no there's, <laughs> there's no perfect plan for like how to go through a quarantine. You just that's you kind of deal with it day by day as you can. Yeah, exactly. So with your work at Till, first of all, talk to me about what Till is mm-hmm. and what it is that you handle in your role as VP of Engineering. Sure. Yeah. So Till, Till's whole mission is to help renters pay, stay and thrive in their homes. So it's all about really helping people pay rent on time um, and avoid eviction. So right now we're having to be working on our second product, which is right now called FlexPay, but, you know, name pending, which basically allows us to uh, analyze people's cash flow and basically pay rent that is in a way more aligned with that. So instead of paying 
100% of your rent on the first of the month, we basically allow you to break it up into more equitable sections that are in line with your cash flow. So like if the easy example is people that get paid every other week, then you'll just pay a little bit on rent every other week or every week or what have you. For some mm-hmm. people, it gets a little bit more complex, you know, if they work gig economy jobs where the income is a bit more volatile. Now, I'm curious, you know, given the current state of affairs here in the U.S. with unemployment and rent, is this something that that Till is set up to help with? Absolutely. In fact, right when COVID really hit in the States and uh, people started going home beginning of March, we just saw our sales pipeline just absolutely explode. I mean, people are looking for, not when I say people, I mean both residents and landlords. We work really with landlords. I mean, that's how we get access to residents. Like people were really desperate for really whatever they could get. You know, you as you might imagine, landlords were kind of panicked. You know, this is certainly unprecedented times in terms of what we're dealing with. And yeah. so there's no there's no playbook here for landlords on how to deal with this situation. Sure, they deal with people in a one off situation. I mean, even during economic downturns, but how the economy effectively came to a halt, like no one knows how to deal with this. And so they they turn to us since, you know, we're sort of like known within those circles as sort of like the tech enabled solution to help people pay rent basically came to us, you know, asking for whatever tools we could provide to kind of help assist them moving forward. And now in your role as VP of engineering, talk to me about kind of the kind of projects you work on at Till. Mm hmm. Yeah. So Till is still pretty small. We're a seed stage startup. So as a result, everyone does a little bit of everything generally. But as VP of engineering, my hands are a little bit in everything. So it's the stuff you might expect. So very involved with the engineering team and product as well in terms of what problems do we want to be solving? You know, what's the customer pain out there for both landlords and residents? How can we build products to basically address that pain. There's the day-to-day management, people management, that aspect of it, technology decisions, stuff like that. But also um, a little bit on the marketing side, you know, how do we, we have a really good machine for sort of like signing units onto the platform, getting landlords to partner with us. But, you know, then we still have to figure out how to get residents to sign up for the product. And so there's a whole sort of a team geared towards that, thinking about how data plays a role in in Till's platform moving forward and into the future, figuring out how we can help landlords identify a resident's sort of uh, what we refer to as a uh, lifetime customer value. We want to think much more broadly about the value of a resident beyond like things like credit score, traditional metrics that current screening uh, technologies used to decide the the worthiness of a resident. Yeah. We want to think a lot a lot bigger than that. Now, what kind of projects I know you you mentioned like <laughs> three different departments that you're working across, engineering, product, yeah. marketing. Yeah. So with that, like are there specific projects you're working on at Till? Uh, oh yeah. The products fall in like several different categories. So there's so there's the the day-to-day product build, right? So we're still working on FlexPay right now. We're still adding features and, and stuff like that. So there's basically working through solving technology problems. There's like integration with sort of the incumbent systems that we have within the rental housing community. So like Property management systems are like a big one. Those are like the big guys who are out there right now. They handle a lot of the sort of like payments and sort of like keeping track of who lives where and all this other stuff. There's a project to actually integrate with those systems so that we can actually 
perform the payments on their behalf. Like there's a little bit of that work. So helping sort of like, you know, define the, the vision for that sort of work. There's the, the data piece as well, basically identifying what data is actually relevant to help us build that customer lifetime value, and then trying to figure out how we can develop models to actually leverage that data. So that's another project. And then, like I said, like there's marketing pieces as well. Like how do we brand ourselves in such a way that people will trust us, right? I mean, we're asking a lot, right? We're asking people to pay us as opposed to their landlord and yeah. trust that we will like get the money there. Like that's not a trivial thing. And the problem is just not technology. People need to trust that you're going to do the right thing with their money. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, like you said, now during this pandemic, it's it's like y'all are in demand, like you're getting more customers now because sure. this is a thing that people are having to deal with more frequently. Yep, for sure. What does like, the team makeup look like that you oversee? Mostly engineering. I think we have, at this point, seven or eight full-time engineers, but we work very closely with product. We have one main product manager who is overseeing the FlexPay product, but I also work closely with the head of product, who is also uh, the co-founder. And I work very closely with the CEO on like most things. Um, so that's generally the team. But like more broadly, there's the uh, head of growth who actually is leading our growth and marketing efforts right now. And there are also a, a couple contractors we work with as well to kind of fill in the gaps where we haven't had an opportunity to actually hire. And we also have a, a customer experience team that is sort of like on the front line interacting with residents when they want to make a payment over the phone or if for some reason they want to cancel a payment or what have you or otherwise do anything that they can't do within the product that is tech enabled. They'll call in or interact with our people in that office. That sounds like a lot of stakeholders. <laughs> Oh yeah, a ton of stakeholders, um, and everyone's you know everyone has a stake in making sure that we're solving the right problems, and we don't always agree. Like this is not you know unique to Till. This is a point of contention for like any early stage uh, product company is figuring out with the limited resources and even now with the limited time we have, what problems are the ones we want to focus our resources on. There's no sense in sort of like trying to do all the things because you know how that goes. You won't do anything very well. And so trying to make sure we we focus is is um, is one of the, the biggest things I deal with day to day. Now, before your work at Till, I saw that you had spent a while working at Mapbox. Mm-hmm. And we've had people from Mapbox. Well, we've had one person from Mapbox on the show mm-hmm. before, uh, Amy Lee yep. Walton. And yep. actually, one of my former coworkers at Glitch, Lizzie Diamond, used to also work yep. at Mapbox. I, I kind of have some familiarity with, with the company. But talk to me about your experience working at Mapbox. What was that like? Yeah, Mapbox was great. So I came in at a really interesting time, not too long after they had closed a, a series C round of funding. So I came into, I was brought in to build and lead a function called navigation data. So essentially this team was responsible for cultivating and leveraging all of the data that is required to create an optimal navigation experience. So the pieces of data that you think um, might be relevant are things like, you know, one-way streets, no U-turns, turn restrictions, things like that, because those are the things that are directly affect sort of your ETA, right? If we say it's going to take you two minutes to get somewhere, does it actually take you two minutes? You know, does it take you a little longer? Does it take you a little less? Uh And so this was a core metric that we used. And so we were responsible for finding or refining data that was already out there to basically add to the decision-making process of like how you get from A to B. 
And I guess speaking of getting from A to B, how did you first get started there? Oh, wow. Mapbox. Yeah, it was really interesting because prior to Mapbox, I was at Capital One. I was in a group called Tech Fellows, which is kind of interesting. And so my time there was coming to an end and I was trying to figure out, you know, what I wanted to do next. And so Mapbox there were a few people there who I knew around DC, you know, DC is small, you know that. And so people whose opinion I trusted, you know, in terms of like, you know, Hey, is this a good place to work? What's going on? What's up? Right. Yeah. And so they gave me some good uh, advice about it. And just like talking on the phone with uh, a couple of people who were there about the problems they were trying to solve, particularly about the navigation data team and thinking about coming in and not only just like working, but like building a new team from scratch and and leading it and like having this really big mission was like very appealing to me. I, I was at a point in my career where I, I just wanted more. I wanted to do more. I wanted to be trusted with more responsibility and larger scopes of work. And this seems like a seemed like a really big challenge and something I would enjoy very much. Okay. I want to come back to that later on about that kind sure. of jump into that. When you look back at your time at Mapbox, what do you think working there taught you? I think working there more than anything made me very, very comfortable with ambiguity. I mean, this is something I understood intellectually prior to that, but Mapbox was the first place where it was really sort of like on my shoulders to like really figure out how to solve certain problems, right? And there were there were no answers. There were like a few suggestions, mm-hmm. you know, and a few mm-hmm. people sort of like on the outside looking in, but really taking a ambiguous problem and like being able to think critically about not only the stakeholders, but the constraints in which you have in terms of time and technology and things like that. Because a lot of times we had solutions that work well on paper, but just like because of physics and like processing time and things like that just would would not work. And so like just learning to operate within constraints and also understanding that no solution will ever, ever be perfect. And just being okay with that, right? You know, shipping a thing that's not 100%, maybe it's 80% or 90%. That was something that I learned a lot there. Nice. I want to, you know, kind of switch gears here a little bit because it, it sounds like certainly you've got this real passion for technology and what it's able to do. I'm mm-hmm. curious to kind of know where that that came from. So I guess to start things off, like where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in a small town in mid-Michigan called Saginaw, Saginaw, Michigan. There were some, like most cities in, in the Midwest, you know, it was a bit rustic. There were like factories there to, that built like steering columns for cars and stuff like that. So most of the people I grew up with, the adults always worked at, quote unquote, the plant. That's how we refer to like all of the bespoke manufacturing facilities there around the auto industry is just the plant. Mm. Was, I guess, tech a big part of growing up for you? Not for me. It wasn't. We didn't even really get a computer until until I was already in high school. And even then, you know, I was more concerned with, you know, extracurricular activities. I was like in a, in a high school Greek group called the Gamma Kappa Kudos. And I swam and played tennis and like, just like just doing weird stuff. I, I got my first job at 15. So I actually really liked working and making my own money. So I spent like a lot of time outside of the house. And so like the idea of like, oh, I can go home and like do something on the computer wasn't really something that really resonated with me until like maybe my senior year of high school. Mm. I'm really, (laughs) you mentioned the high school fraternity and it reminded me about, we sort of had high school fraternities too. I grew up in Alabama and we had like, we had three of them and they were all sort of 
modeled after historically black fraternities and sororities. So mm-hmm. like we had the African Knights, which yep. was supposed to be like the Alphas. Yeah. <laughs> we had Culturama, <laughs> which were for the AKAs, and we had the Deltines, which was for Delta Sigma Theta. It was interesting because African Knights, all men, mm-hmm. Culturama, all women, but Deltines was mixed. It's very yeah. weird. And I never really understood the whole like high school fraternity thing. It wasn't until I got to college that I kind of, I guess, not to say that I didn't understand the concept of fraternities. I did. I grew up, you know, around black people. So I got it. But like, yeah, the high school fraternity thing is something that is still a weird phenomenon to me. Yeah. Looking back, well, I don't think kudos like had the the same sort of like one-to-one mapping, but Uh I don't know. when, When I think back about the things we did and the things we learned, first of all, I was run by a woman. So that was really interesting. But we were very much taught and molded in a sort of like, you'll know it when I describe it, sort of like old school, like black folks discipline sort of like environment. So, and and there was a lot of good that came from that. So like really weird, like habits we would pick up, like we would have our meetings, I think on Mondays or Tuesdays, and like we were not allowed to chew gum. We had to sit up straight in our chairs. Like it was like very serious. Wow. Um, and like we had to participate in in community service. We couldn't do the fun stuff until we did the community service stuff. So we have like an annual ball and like we would have step shows and stuff like that. And that was all fine and great. But like you had to be there for community service. Uh-huh. You had to like put in work. And so it did really sort of shape my thinking about play and reward versus like putting in the work first. Yeah. Like this was something I just kind of had going into school. And so for that reason, I, I really value that experience a lot. Yeah, our sorority fraternities weren't anything like that. They were all <laughs> it was like all social stuff. So it was none of the the community service kind of aspect. So that's interesting. Oh no, we were we were, we were about business. We had, you know, mandatory uniforms for like different types of events, like wow. even like the fun stuff. We had to like be dressed alike, but we would have to wear suits for certain business meetings and it was real. It was real. So uh, I, I liked it. That reminds me of my freshman year at Morehouse. Like we had to wear suits for freshman orientation uh, yep. that we had once a week. Everything yeah. that's, that's taking me back to that time. How does one go from Saginaw, Michigan to Tuskegee, Alabama? What's yeah. that road look like? Yeah, interesting. So Tuskegee was not my first choice. It was like no choice. So I had. <laughs> so, I, don't, so I didn't mean I to wanted, laugh at that, but. <laughs> no, 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 no. So I had set my mind on like, I wanted to study aerospace engineering. Ah. Um, And so I had put my mind on Virginia Tech, like I had applied, like I got accepted, you know, they were like my first and only choice. Like I applied, I don't think to anyone else. And like, I hadn't gotten the scholarship, like it was all good. I was like, man, this is easy, right? It just like put in the application and I was good. My stepfather who raised me, he and my mother had been together since I was like five or six. He was like very much into like HBCU culture and I like really wanted to see me go to an HBCU. And at the time I was just like, whatever, I didn't really care. It was just like, mm, I just want to like go study aerospace stuff. But he was like really into it. He really pushed me like to the point where like he took it upon himself to like go online. This is a miracle. And like print out the application, the college admissions application and just was like, just fill it out and just see what they say. Just see what they say. He was like, really? And so I did it and I filled it out. And then like going through the process, it was very interesting. Like I just got a different vibe from like the people who were there. And I don't know. And then like I just changed my mind one day. It was just like, well, 
he really wants me to go there. And it wasn't so much that particular school. Like at the time, Tuskegee was the only HBCU, I think, that offered an aerospace engineering program. So it was just like, well, huh. this is the only way he can get me to an HBCU. Yeah. Like, this is the school it's going to be. And so he convinced me. And so that's how I that's how I actually ended up there. I'm surprised, Tuskegee. I would think it would be Alabama A&M. It's a normal, and normal is near Marshall Space Flight Center. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Did your stepdad, did he go to an HBCU? No, he didn't. I think that's one of the reasons. I think he had always envisioned, like, someone he raised was going to go <laughs> to an HBCU. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, it was, it, was, it was my turn. I was on dick, so. I'm curious. Like, I'm, I'm trying to place, I guess, the context. I'm trying to place this in the context. Like, what mm-hmm. year is this that this is happening? This was 2001-ish. Okay. All right. Yeah. Like 2001. Yeah. I was kind of trying to see, because you know, in the like early to, I'd say mid 90s, mm-hmm. like HBCU stuff was everywhere. It was such yeah. a big part of, such a big part of hip hop, really. Like sure. you had the the clothing, the, the African-American collegiate, I think experience, I think it was called something like that. AACA mm-hmm. was the acronym, but you had yeah. the, the sweatshirts with the Frankenstein stitching and they were in the videos and they were on TV and stuff like yep. that. Like going to college, particularly a black college was like such a big deal. Like between that and like a different world. Yeah. It was like, man, going to a black college is, is, like, that is the goal. Like, that's the goal yeah. to do it. So I was kind of trying to contextualize when this was happening because, like, 2001, I feel like at that point in time, black colleges were really looked at as just, like, party schools. Yeah, I think a lot of them were. And for me in particular, honestly, like, well, we we jumped ahead a little bit. I didn't even want to go to college at all. Oh, okay. Uh, I, to the uh, surprise of my mother, like I wanted to go to the Marines. Like I, I was like, cause I got good grades in, in high school and it was just like, I was one of those kids where I didn't need to study very much. I just like showed up and got good grades. And so yeah. it was just like, I don't want to do this for another few years. I want to do something different. And so like, I started talking to like a Marine recruiter and everything. Like I had one come over and like talk to me. Like I remember that my mom was just like walked in after work and I was sitting at the table with like a recruiter wow. um, and like the look on her face was just like, <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. (laughs) But, and and I went through with it and everything and like, she was not happy about it, but turns out because, uh, as a kid I had, you know, active asthmatic symptoms, Mm -hmm. I was disqualified and I actually couldn't enroll in the service. And so, so college was my, uh, my backup plan, I guess. Talk to me about your first year at Tuskegee. What was that like? Man, that was amazing. I'm so glad I ended up uh, going to Tuskegee. I loved it. So first of all, one of my goals is like, all right, well, if I'm going to go to college, it's, it's got to be far away. So like, at least Tuskegee meets that criteria. So I went all the way down there. Man, this was just like, first of all, just learning about people, particularly black people from different geographic reasons in the country was just like, was just an amazing experience, particularly people, you know, in the South. Yeah. My roommate, my freshman year was from Atlanta. And so since I didn't have any family nearby, you know, I would oftentimes just like get in the car with him and I would go home with him on the weekends. Like his nice. mom called me her, her up north son. Um, <laughs> so it was a lot of weekends just like getting in the car, going to Atlanta. And then like we would just hang out, like hook up with his, you know, hometown friends and just, I don't know. And I would just do this the entire year and like meeting other people. And yeah. I don't know, man. It was just, it was a very surreal experience and it just kind of really opened my eyes up to this, you know, brave new world out there outside of my, my hometown in Michigan. 
So do you feel like Tuskegee really kind of helped prepare you once you got out there in the working world? Because you, you got your degree there in computer science, right? I did. I did. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that Tuskegee University's computer science department is, is probably one of the sort of like undiscovered gems and not only the HBCU landscape, but just in general. I mean, we, we, we know this about like, you know, HBCUs in general, like the quality of education and people who come out of those. But the Tuskegee University computer science department was just really remarkable. CompSci is, is a pretty hard degree. You know, they did not shy away from that. You know, we got it just as hard as like any of the folks at Stanford or whatever, at least based on what I've seen. You know, my operating systems class was just as difficult as like any of the stuff I see out there in terms of curriculum descriptions at any of these other sort of quote unquote major comp sci schools. And so I think that, you know, anyone coming out of there with a degree in computer science can do well just about anywhere. I'm so glad that you mentioned that about the curriculum, because I don't know if you remember this. This was maybe a few years ago. Bloomberg magazine had done like a profile about Howard University. Mm-hmm. And about having students from Howard University attending, I think they were like doing internships at Google and they had set up like a, a West Coast Howard campus called Howard West or something this. like that. Yeah, yeah. But there, I remember in that article, there were discussions around just like the curriculum and how like at HBCUs, they tend to be less than what you would find, I guess, that maybe a... PWI or a traditional research institute type of college. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm glad to hear you say that like the curriculum was like on par with what you would find at those kind of schools. Cause I feel like that's a myth that needs to be dispelled is that HBCUs are, are less than you get yeah. the same level, the same rubric of knowledge, if not greater than you would mm-hmm. get at a lot of these other schools. I don't know if a lot of people really, really recognize that. Yeah, it's so weird because like I picked up on that sentiment as well, uh, not too long after graduating from from Tuskegee. And my whole thing was like, I don't know what these people are talking about. Like comp sci was hard as hell at Tuskegee. Like, (laughs) I mean, you know, between like, I mean, the algorithm stuff and just like just learn. And then C++ was my first programming language. So learning like about programming and then learning about it like in C++ and like talking about pointers and then like pointers to pointers and like, oh, this thing called Big old notation and oh, like, yeah. It was like, they put us through it. Like that was like a thing. And so when people say, oh, it's it's not quite as good. I don't understand that. I don't understand that attitude at all. Yeah. I started out at Morehouse doing computer science, computer engineering, mm-hmm. mainly to be like Dwayne Wayne. I was like, I want to, uh, that's, I'm trying to follow that prototype. It was mostly hard because of the professor that I had. He just didn't, yeah. He didn't like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say he didn't like to teach. He would do this thing where you would sit through the class for 50 minutes and he would just like give you anecdotes about his buddies and like fishing and all this kind of stuff. And then like, once you have to go to the next class, then mm-hmm. he starts teaching. Yeah. It's like, oh, I guess I weeded everybody out. Now I'll, I'll get going on the curriculum. And it's like, dude, I'm taking 18 hours. I don't have time for this. Yeah. Like, yeah, you got to get on it. And I ended up switching yeah. over. Cause it was a dual degree program that I was mm-hmm. in. So you would do three years and get a comp, get a bachelor's in computer science and then two more years and get a master's. So you graduate in five years with two degrees yep. and it sounds good. It's hard as hell. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I don't want to do that. Cause I was learning C yep. and I was getting it, but I was, it was not what I wanted to do. Yeah. I remember going yeah. to my advisor and telling him that, uh, 
I wanted to learn how to make websites mm-hmm. because I had, you know, some experience with HTML in like really in high school, mm-hmm. just like messing around with like reverse engineering websites. And I was learning a lot of stuff on my own. And he's like, oh, the internet's just a fad. He's yeah. like, if, if that's a thing that you want to get into, like you might need to change your major because that's not going to be around in a few years. And wow. so I did. I changed it to math and, you know, the rest mm. is history. Yeah. So, and I didn't, you know, kind of mention this before, but you graduated with a computer science degree, but the initial reason for you going to Tuskegee was to study aerospace. Like, did something happen yep. that made you switch? Yeah, man. Chemistry. <laughs> okay. All right. I was towards the end of my, um, so I had a great time at Tuskegee my first year, but, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, I just got really good grades naturally growing up. But mm-hmm. as a result, like I didn't have any study skills. I didn't know how to study. It's, it's really interesting because I remember my first day of class. I remember this so pointedly. The chemistry class I was taking, the instructor got up there like he just he said something. He was giving a speech to all the freshmen and he was just like, look, this is a completely different ball game." Like in high school, the quote unquote smart kids got good grades. But like in college, the only difference between the people who are successful and the people who are not successful are the people who work hard. And like at the time, it kind of went over my head like, yeah, whatever. But now looking back, that's one of the truest things I've ever heard in my life. Like, I don't care how smart you are, like you have to study and you have to put in the work starting starting there. And so anyway, I didn't listen to that advice (laughs) my first year between my trips to Atlanta and just like, you know, hanging out in the yard and just like getting to know people and whatnot. Mm -hmm. You know, my grades suffered my my first year and a lot of it had to do with just I wasn't really interested in what was going on. You know, like I was in these classes all related to aerospace engineering. Like I just wasn't as interested in it as I thought. And so my attention span was just not there. And so towards the end of the the year, I was in my dorm room and my roommate's buddy was there as well. And I was like trying to figure out like what I was going to do. And I just asked him, I was just like, so, you know, such and such, like, what's your major And he was like, well, it's computer science. And like I started thinking and this was like not too long after Napster and stuff. I was like, yeah, I like illegally downloading music from the Internet and I have a computer. (laughs) Maybe I can do computer science. Like, let's see. And then like soon thereafter, I changed my major. And so I started comp sci the the next semester. And that's when I wrote my first computer program in C++. And like, that was it. I was hooked. I was like, yes, I like this. I can like go to the computer, put on some headphones, like solve a problem that's like a puzzle and like this weird language. And like, that was it. Interesting. Did you pledge? I didn't pledge. I did not. Nope. Mm, I didn't pledge either. It was interesting. Like, I guess my my high school fraternity experience, I was one of the the Dell teens. I wasn't I wasn't in the right social class to be in the African nights, whatever. Anyway, but <laughs> by the time yeah. I got to by the time I got to college, well also I went to Morehouse, which is kind mm-hmm. of a fraternity in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And it didn't make sense to me to be like part of a frat in a frat, if that makes sense. Yeah. I just yeah, didn't want to do it. Sense. And and yeah. I didn't realize how expensive it was, to be honest with you. Like it's like thousands of dollars to do it and you have to get sponsored by other people. I was like, I ain't got time for that. 
Yeah, I, I heard about that. I think initially for me, it was just like, well, I don't have a grades to do it anyway. So like, I'm not going to worry about it. But even after I put my grades up, like my second year, I don't know. It's like I was having a good time. Like I had my circle of friends. The other thing is like, I'm a I'm kind of an introverted guy. Like I like being social, but only on my terms. So the idea that I would be sort of like attached to a group of people, no matter what, and have to yeah. like, go do stuff when I didn't want to. It was like, eh, I don't know, yeah. maybe not. Yeah, like the probate shows and the step shows, like all that is fly and everything, but like I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I get what you're yeah. saying. So you go through Tuskegee, you get your computer science degree, you graduate. What's like the first real job that you have once you've graduated from Tuskegee? Yeah, so so government contractors are are a big hiring force out of HBCUs. So I had a job like before I graduated for uh, to go to work at Lockheed Martin over in uh, the D.C. area. That's how I ended up here. And so, yeah, I um, accepted a job offer like in March before graduation, packed up my Chevy and then like drove up to D.C. afterwards. And so, yeah, I started started working for for the government in the form of a contractor. How was that experience? Um, Varied. (laughs) <laughs> I was so I, I went into this this engineering leadership development program very early on and that was a really great experience. Basically it was a three year sort of like job rotation program. The idea was that they put you in different places throughout the company so you can get different experiences, all to help you become like a better future leader at Lockheed Martin. Obviously, that didn't work out. But so that was really interesting because I got to like move around and do a, a few things because the other thing was I was waiting on my security clearance to go through until that went through. I was very limited in the sort of jobs I could do. And so I had to kind of take what I can get. And so my first job rotation was all the way out in, in Phoenix, Arizona. So like I had just moved to D.C. Mm. and then I just like moved to to Phoenix, Arizona for like six months to do it, to work on an unclassified project. And that was kind of interesting. It's when I sort of like first learned that, well, I did really good in computer science and I know how to program, but I don't know how to be a software engineer. Like that's a completely different skill set, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, how do I do testing? How do I work with people? That sort of thing. And that's still a problem today, honestly, in terms of people coming out of school. So that's when I started to pick up those skills in a, in a somewhat limited way. So after I did that for a few years, I stuck around for another year. But it was clear to me that sort of like this big corporate machine, particularly attached to the government, just just wasn't really my style. You know, I would read about these these cool companies on the outside, you know, the Googles and, you know, all this other stuff and, and smaller companies and startups and all the cool stuff that they were doing. And I wanted to be a part of that scene. Um, I didn't want to work in a big corporate company where they send me an email and saying, you know, you can't wear jeans on Fridays anymore because like someone said so. So yeah, I decided that it just, it just wasn't for me. And uh, after that, you also did work at, I think iStrategy Labs is what it was called back then. Now it's, it's ISL. Was that like a big jump in responsibility from your previous work? It was while I was, so while I I went in as a, as a senior engineer, it was a little, it was a little bit into my career at that point. And that's when I first got into management at ISL. So it was, it was interesting. I was one of the, the more senior engineers on the team, and we had a VP of engineering who who was leaving. I think I was out on paternity leave at the time when the news was announced. And so the CTO actually called me while I was at home and he was like, hey, did you hear the news? Such and such is leaving. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, you know, why I'm calling you, right? It's like, yep, I know. We need <laughs> people to step up into management. And like, are you cool with that? And 
I initially said no. I had never seen myself as a manager at all. Like this was like not a thing I was interested in at all. I went to write code, right? Went to school for it. That's what I had been doing. I was good at it. And so I wanted to keep doing it. But something told me to just, you know, like think about it. And so I did take a little bit of time and, you know, I was thinking about it and trying to figure out, you know, what what are the implications if I don't do this? You know, thinking about my own career and my own sort of like lack of mentors in, in my career. And a lot of it was because there were just there weren't many people with whom I could relate coming up in my career and who really understood sort of like my unique challenges coming in as a black man. And so basically, I basically convinced myself that like, if I don't do this, and I'm turns out I'm pretty good at it. Like, have I done a disservice to everyone else who's coming up after me because they don't get to see someone else in in that role? Yeah. And so, based on that, I decided to to take the the management position. I was going to ask, did you feel like you were ready for that jump? I didn't, but I felt that. I had a support system that was there. Like, you know, these are people like I had been working with for a while. Like I knew them, like they were good people. I knew that and they believed in me. And so I felt that it was at least a safe place to try things out. And if it didn't work out, it didn't work out. I knew that my skills were valued as an engineer and I could always go back to doing that. So I felt that if I was going to try it, this was a good place to try it. Mm. Now that you've reached, you know, this point in, in your career where you're at now, you're VP of engineering at a, at a company. What are some lessons that you've learned? I say this sometimes in like sort of like closed door meetings, but like I'll like say it here as well. But one of the things that I've learned, this is probably the biggest lesson I've learned in my career, is that regardless of what people tell you, no one ever really gives a shit how hard you work. Really? It's all about the outcomes that you can produce. If you take Till, for example, like we're trying to do something very ambitious. We're trying to take this, this industry and modernize it. No one's going to remember us because we work really hard and tried our best. They're only going to remember us is if we're successful and we actually are able to shift the paradigm of like how people think about rent, not only for residents, but also for landlords. And this is something I've seen over and over and over in my career. It just so happens that there's a correlation between hard work and success. And so I think people tend to, you know, show their admiration for hard work, but it's only in in association with like, well, that person was successful, right? You know, they were successful because they worked hard or whatever. But in fact, no one really cares about how hard you work because a lot of people don't have to work very hard and they see successful outcomes all the time and we admire them. Mm. What is, I'd say, the best career compliment that you've ever received? The best career compliment. I think it had something to do with, I don't remember the exact wording or phrasing, but I remember I was teaching like a JavaScript workshop or something like that. And people were like asking me what I did. And they were like, oh, you've done a lot for someone who's like young. And I was like, well, I'm not that young, but thank you. So I don't know. I guess, um, you know, you start throwing around titles like, and I'm not like much of a title guy. You know, I, I think at the time I was like a director engineering of something at Mapbox. And so like that was like very impressive to some people because like I guess they worked at a um, a much bigger company where sort of like the quote unquote executive level people were a bit more gray haired and just didn't I didn't fit the bill. I didn't fit the picture of what they had you know seen before. And so this was something that I guess came to their mind. It's like, oh, you're, you're kind of young for your role. Hmm. How did that make you feel? I don't know. Kind of mixed feelings. Like I know what the intention of the compliment was. 
but also it kind of made me feel like, well, I'm human just like everyone else. So I have my doubts and it's like, well, you know, do people actually believe in me? You know, do they think that I can do my job, you know, just because I'm not, you know, in my late forties and I may carry around a particular title. So, Mm -hmm. so I thought about that a little bit, you know, it didn't sit with me for very long, kind of brushed it off my shoulder a little bit, but that was sort of like my initial reaction. Yeah. What keeps you motivated and inspired these days to like continue your work? Well, generally solving hard technical problems, but like these days at Till, just the idea that we're working in a space that um, people need us, right? Um, and, you know, I know everyone like working at a at a startup has, you know, they have these ideas of like, you know, we're changing the world, this sort of thing. But we are actually addressing a really, a real problem that people face all the time in this country. And it's been largely ignored, Right. Like there is there's a real problem with with the rising cost of of living and housing, particularly in areas like New York and San Francisco and even D.C. to a to a great extent. Wages aren't really going up for people, so they do struggle to pay rent in a lot of ways. And so Till doesn't like solve all those problems, but we do address a problem that is is very close to home for the vast majority of people in this country. And so the fact that we can actually help a lot of people is really, really motivating for me. Whenever I talk to people about Till's mission and the particular problems we're trying to solve, like like people's eyes just sort of like light up like, whoa, like no one I've never heard of this. Like no one else is doing this. Like I really hope you are successful because this is amazing. This is something like I've never experienced in any of my previous work. And so it's hugely motivating for me. What advice would you give to people out there that are listening to this and they want to sort of follow in the footsteps that you've done? Like, what would you tell them? Yeah, I would tell them to always make sure you are that you're aligned with the uh, with the needs and the and the goals of the business. I know it's it's very easy to go into a, ro- a role and say like you know I'm gonna get mine. I'm gonna do my thing, and you definitely want to like have your your self interest in mind. You know you don't want to let people take advantage of you. But while you're doing that, you should always keep in mind sort of what is the company trying to accomplish, or more specifically your your immediate manager. Like one of the things you can talk about. In your one-on-ones with your manager is, you know, like, how are you judged? You Mm. know, how is your performance judged? You know, what is going to make you successful? And then making sure that you align yourself as much as possible with the things that are going to, like, help that person. And then they're going to trust you more. They're going to be more opportunities for advancement. They're going to say, like, hey... Maurice, like you're, you're a real go-getter. You like to work hard. Like you, you make me look good, right? Like these are things that people should be asking themselves. And it does involve a little bit of sort of empathy and taking yourself out of your own shoes for a little while. But like, if you actually want to sort of like progress in your career, like these are the things you, I think you, you have to understand. Now, one sort of common question that we've got that we're asking, you know, kind of everyone on the show this year is, like, how are you using the skills that you have to help build a better future, a more equitable future? So I'll, mm-hmm. I'll turn the question to you. How are you using your tech skills to help build a more equitable future? Yeah, that's a good question. I try to volunteer as much as I can. For a couple of years, I was the co-curriculum development lead for the DC chapter of Black Girls Code. So that was hugely rewarding, just like being able to like bring, you know, uh, just a fraction of like my tech knowledge to the table to kind of help educate young women of color and help them learn the program or at least learn 
whether or not they they actually enjoy it. That's been hugely beneficial. I regularly like volunteer my services to to nonprofits, particularly for like teaching. Um, there's a local group here um, called Color Coded, and I was teaching some JavaScript uh, courses for them. Like they tried to pay me, but like, yeah, I don't know. It's like. I just enjoy doing it. Like I do, I do enjoy teaching. I think that's one of the reasons um, I stayed in management because it doesn't allow me to sort of like take a posture of like mentoring and teaching and stuff like that. So I, I really like uh, working with those groups and, and doing that sort of work. Okay. All right. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? It sounds like you've, it sounds like you have a plan <laughs> in place <laughs> for kind of where you want to go, but, but it's 2025 we're hopefully done with all this pandemic stuff. Like, where yeah. do you see yourself? What kind of work do you want to be doing? Yeah, honestly, I'm pretty committed to to making Till successful. I, I got in like super early. Um, it's still, I mean, like I said, we're seed stage. It's super early. Like I'm committed to, you know, riding this thing out. And like, I want to help transform the way people think about rent and help people actually stay in their homes longer. And so with any luck, and hard work within five years, you know, we will we will be much further along in in our journey to doing that, helping people stay in their homes, helping them pay rent, helping landlords uh, create more value in their portfolios, you know, helping figure out how we take so many people we see who are unbanked and help them become banked. Right. Making inroads in, in unemployment as well. Like these are things that are sort of like on the periphery of like Till's mission, but are very additive and complementary to what we're trying to achieve. So hopefully I'm still a part of that and still leading the technology vision to help us get through the next five years. And just to kind of, you know, wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? You can find me on my Twitter. I always talk about I'm going to leave Twitter, but I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> uh, I'm at uh, Recursive Funk. That's Funk with a K. Where you can go to my website, check me out at uh, RecursiveFunk.io. Where does Recursive Funk come from? I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. So Recursive Funk is basically my attempt to sort of like explain my love for the intersection of technology and art. Like on one hand, I'm really into programming and like the very logical nature of it and like solving problems. But on the other hand, I'm like really into jazz and other forms of music and, and performing arts and theater and stuff like that. And so I didn't I couldn't really think of any other way to like express that very concisely that of then like, oh, recursive funk. Nice. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Johnny Austin, I want to thank you, you know, so much for coming here on the show. You know, when, when Big first kind of introduced you to me and kind of told me about some of the design and engineering work you did, I was really interested to kind of just learn more about you and what it is that you're doing. And so mm -hmm. I think certainly the work that you're doing at Till is really important mm -hmm. right now in this current stage that we're in i keep i yep. keep referencing the pandemic but we're we're in this is the this is the uh, reality that we're in right now unfortunately but i'm glad that you're able to kind of use your skills and that you're with a company that is now like really allowing yourself to help people like this is something that is i think anyone that is a designer developer etc they want to get down to the root of solving problems for people and sure. this is really like a big problem that you're helping to solve and i'm really excited to see kind of what you, you do in the future, what comes up next for you. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, 
big thanks to Johnny Austin and, of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Johnny and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And, of course, thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.